Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Nothing of Hawaii, just so you know. Yeah. So, let me tell you about my trip. First of all, it was awesome. Uh, like, I don't, I mean, it's hard for me even to put into words the experiences that I have. Um, and, and let me tell you why. Um, we are so missing the mark on mental fitness in this country. It's ridiculous. And I, I mean... Inside the DOD, outside of the DID, DOD, I mean, it's a joke. And um, so many people are hurting in some way, shape, or form. It's ridiculous. So that's the backdrop of what I do when I go speak, okay? So anyway, I've never been to Hawaii. And I have to tell you, I'm, I'm born on December 7th. I have read about Pearl Harbor um, my entire life. One of my great memories uh, with my mother is her taking me to go see the movie Tora, Tora, Tora on my birthday when it came out. I can't remember what year, 1971 or two or three, something like that. Um, but my, you know, we went to the Alhambra Theater in Sacramento where it, where it premiered. It was the biggest theater in Sacramento. You know, the, the, the red you know, burgundy-colored drapes and carpets and the winding staircases. Yeah. But my mom and I went to dinner, and, and we went there. And, and and the only reason she went, because she knew I loved history and I wanted to go. So anyway, um, so flying into Pearl Harbor, you know, you're sitting there looking out the window, and now you're seeing from the air, you know, things that you've, uh, you know, only seen pictures of. So I land, and I, I, and I'll tell you what, the Air Force, they roll out the red carpet for me. A lieutenant colonel met me at the airport. Yeah. Gave me a lay. 
Yeah, so I had the total Hawaii experience. So they were great to me. And uh, took me over to the rental car place. And so it's about, I don't know, it's about a five-and-a-half-hour flight going out, flying against the wind, five coming back, flying with the wind. And so add another three hours uh, to go from Orange County, get there an hour before, hour flight to San Francisco, Cisco, hour layover out to Hawaii. So anyway, about eight hours total, which is which is pretty similar going to the East Coast, except you're going a different direction relative to time. So anyway, get there and uh, go to pick up my rental car, say goodbye to the Air Force people, and there's a line, and I'm asking like, how many, how long you been in this line? Over two hours, and the line's longer than when I got in. They have one person working at the counter, a dollar, at the Honolulu airport. The Daniel Inouye. Yeah, for those of you you don't know who Senator Inouye is, uh, he was part of the, what, the 442nd uh, Infantry Regiment, made most up mostly of, uh, uh, or made up entirely of uh, Japanese soldiers who fought in Europe in World War II and set a record, I want to say they're the most decorated regiment, in Europe, yeah. So Daniel Annoyed. Uh So anyway, I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing this. I'm not standing in line for two and a half to three hours. So I go to get a. Uh, so I go to get Uber. I'm staying aboard the base at Pearl Harbor Hickam. Pearl Harbor Hickam, right next to each other. I didn't know that for some reason. I thought Hickam was further inland, right, right next to Pearl Harbor. So I'm going to Hawaii, and I'm going to stay on the base, right? So the Uber guy shows up. He says, yeah, I can't get on the base. I said, then when you saw the address, you see it's all aboard the base. Why do you say you're going to take me? Oh, you need a military guy. So, okay, go in the app, and if you scroll down, you know, you'll see military. Okay, so I press that button. No drivers available that can do that. <laughs> So he goes, hey, man, I'll just take you over there. Uh, no charge. I can't get you on, but I'll take you over there. So he takes me to the entrance of the base. I get out of the, his vehicle, grab my suitcase, right? It rolls. So I walk the mile that, to the uh, the BOQ place. Who Then I check in, and they call a cab to take me to the distinguished visitor's quarter. So I stay there. And then... I order something to eat. I order a pizza. And then um, and then I, I, I go to lay down to take a nap. And by this time, it's what? You know, 6, 7 o'clock. So I'm going to take a nap for a couple hours and get up. And, and, and I have some work. I have to do rehearsing and timing and stuff like that because uh, the, the brief was shorter, you know. I did one that was – I had three hour, three and a half hours to do it. I did another one. I had three hours to do it. And then I did a third one that I had two and a half hours to do it. So I had to tweak it every time. So anyway, I'm working on that. I wake up. It's like one in the morning. I'm like, I'm not rehearsing shit right now. So I get up and uh, I go to meet the, uh, I go to to be at the reception, uh, not the reception, um, the opening remarks of the, uh, of the general, uh, General Worldbach, who's the uh, commanding general of Air Forces Pacific. 
yeah, hello. <laughs> so uh, anyway, yeah, out there on the tip of the spear. So saw him address the opening remarks to his commanders conference, which is people that are going people that are going to take over squadrons and wings in the Pacific Air Force and their spouses. So um, so I'm there for that. Then I go do a presentation that was designed for senior enlisted people. So I went and did that, and then I came back for a reception. I come back for a reception, and the reception's held in the courtyard of AirPac's headquarters. One of them. This was a barracks on December 7th that was attacked. So you're in the courtyard, and the walls have pock marks on them. Yeah, you'll see them. I'll put them up here in uh in the post that I put up today. And um and so I'm geeking out over the history of this whole thing. And so the courtyard's got his it's got the flag that flew over Hickam Airfield, Hickam Army Airfield uh that day on display. The flag is was flown uh, complete with rips and everything for years on December 7th over Hickam and then it went to I think it went to the Air Force Academy, if I'm not mistaken. And then it came back to Hickam when they figured out how to preserve it and things like that. So that's there. You see the pock marks, the bullet holes, you know, marks on the walls of this barracks. And then you see the list of casualties. And then somebody introduces me to the base historian at Hickam. And he and I start talking. You know? And, you know, just interesting little anecdotal things. He said, you know, the two privates that were at at that radar truck at the north end of the island. I don't know what name. The islands, is that that island Oahu? I I don't know. I'm not really up on my Hawaii shit. Um, I'll find out here in a second. I think it's Oahu. So, um, yeah, they were on the north shore in this new technology radar and they radioed into their combat operations center. Hey, there's a flight of aircraft. And what the watch officer knew was there was a flight of what B 17s coming in from Seattle or something like that. Right. And, um, so the, that Island station, uh, that radar station anyway, um, the lieutenant that takes that phone call and these two privates and lieutenant are all vigorously investigated, um, you know, during the course of the war as, as people try to get to the bottom of what happened um, at Pearl Harbor. Um, he stays in the, in, in the air for, he's exonerated, said that he did what he was supposed to do. He said uh, they were. Ex- uh, he was exonerated and stayed in the Air Force and retired out of the Air Force. But for the, his entire life, he regretted, you know, the events. Obviously, the, the events of that morning that that he didn't have at least some information to, you know, that would lead him in a different direction. Right. Um, the other thing he told me was, you know, the Navy and the Army did not really communicate very well. I said, really, and he said, yeah. He said the Navy, you know, had two submarine events that morning and communicated neither one of them with the Army uh, here at Hickam Field or up at uh, 
Schofield Barracks or any of the other facilities around the island. The other thing that, um, and I didn't, so, and so, so that's Monday. Tuesday, I do two presentations. One's a virtual one uh, for spouses, I did. And, uh, and uh, so it was very, it was very cool, very well received, all of it, all of it. I mean, post-traumatic winning is, is a crowd pleaser because it's, it only deals in the truth. And I think people always have a jaundiced eye when they walk in the door and then they leave happy because they see a path and they don't hear bullshit. And so post-traumatic winning is, 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 is a fun thing to do because of the response that I get every time I do it. So then, uh, so on Tuesday, I do it in the morning and then I go over to do, uh, I go over to do it for the commander's course. And, uh, and that goes great. And then I stay afterwards and, uh, and I, and I just, you know, I talk to people, uh, who want to come up and talk, uh, you know, something, you know, you know, I, I want to, you know, tell you, Hey, I thought this was great. I have a question for you. I met a psychiatrist who, who loved it, which always I find interesting because, um, the psychiatrist anyway, she's like, look, we get frustrated because it's like, we're supposed to have a solution for this. And she says, I love your leadership piece. And this is this is like a layered defense. This is a layered effort. And she said, and, and you're absolutely right. There's a huge leadership component that's being unmet as they say, as they've outsourced mental health to us. And they expect us to fix things that, that we're not in a position to fix. We deal with mental health issues. A lot of this is not. I'm like, whoa. So that was an interesting conversation. I had another conversation with Special Forces guy, you know, Air Force guy, saying that, look, man, we we're we're horrible at this, and yours is the first thing I seen I've ever seen that I would recommend to my friends. Hey, man, you got to see this. I said, well, open some doors, man. So anyway, um, Navy people saw it. Yeah, so they called me and said, hey, we want you to come back and come come to my ship. So Intel people saw it and say we like you. So anyway, that was all good. So after that recept after that, after doing it twice on Tuesday, I went back to my room, ate leftover pizza and crashed. I woke up and I ordered pasta from Pizza Hut. I had two I since you ordered food twice in in my stay, right, in Hawaii, both times from Pizza Hut. Because I didn't have a car to go anywhere. And where I was staying, not too many people knew how to get to the distinguished visitor quarters because it didn't have a street address. And they're like, well, unless you can give us a street address, we're not, we, we, we really have problems finding these things. And building 922 isn't on our map. I'm like, this is awesome. This is a nightmare. So anyway, I eat Pizza Hut twice. And then I, then I crashed. I get up and I'm thinking, okay, well, when I'm going to bed, I'm thinking, I'll get up and pack in the morning. My flight leaves at 9. I'll have plenty of time. I said, but I've got to go down to Pearl Harbor. I've got to see the Arizona Memorial. I mean, I at least got to lay my eyeballs on it. I can't come here and not see that. So the cab driver that picked me up at the BOQ and took me to the Distinguished Visitor Quarters on Sunday afternoon had given me his card. So I text him. His name's Eddie from Japan. Eddie, can you give me a ride? And then I find out that his name isn't really Eddie, right? And you know how that shit goes. 
I'm calling him Eddie. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. But that's, then I look at his card, the second card he gives me, and his name is like Kaza or something like that. I'm like, I look at the card and I'm like, your name's not Eddie. And he starts laughing. Goes, He goes, no, nah, but it doesn't matter. I'm like, that's bullshit. And he starts laughing. So anyway, I text him Tuesday night and said, hey, could you take me to the airport? But I have a detour I want to make. And he said, sure, I could do it. I'll charge you. But I said, I don't care. So he picks me up and we go down to the place where you you pick up the launch that takes you across the harbor to the USS Arizona Memorial and takes you on tours. So I get out of the I get out of the car and I don't I, I can't stay. I don't even walk into I just walk to, to where I can get a good view of the Arizona Memorial because I've never seen it and the battleship Missouri is now in front of it. So I walk down and I'm walking across this grass, and I get to this position behind a dumpster, <laughs> and I take I take a picture. And I'll tell you what um, was what was surprising to me is this. What's surprising to me is how um, how narrow Pearl Harbor is. Yeah, when you when you're standing on the uh, the base side and not the the Fort Island side, right? When you're standing on that, you the channels. I mean, relatively narrow, and you're thinking, man, when the Arizona went up, that must have been a ginormous explosion. So. I told you I met the um I told you I met the base historian, right? And so at the reception um on Monday night I meet the base historian and he and I are talking and he's explaining some stuff to me and I'm asking I'm asking so so why were the why were the aircraft all parked so close together? He said, "Well, he said the primary threat was sabotage. So the way you se- could secure them was to keep them consolidated." And fueled in case you had to move them to disperse them. He said, so they're all close and they're all fueled. I'm like, ugh. He said, yep, that's why. The um. So he says, look. I, he said, I wish I, he said, do you have time for me to, you know, do you have a couple hours? He said, I'll, I'll, I'll take you around the island and I'll show you the different things you should see relative to the attack. And I said, I can't this time. I said, but I'm coming back two more times. He said, okay. In the next couple visits, he said, you and I are going to go do a staff ride, and I'll show you. And so we started talking about, you know, you know, my love of history and my time at IOC and, and doing battlefield tours with guys like Jay Luvas. He said, oh, Dr. Luvas. <laughs> so we're having a discussion about Jay Luvas. And, and so, yeah, next time I go back, yeah, the base historian and I are going to become buddies going to hang out like history dorks and do history so uh yeah i'm fired up about that i'm fired up about that so yeah that was my only i got my eyeballs on the arizona memorial and that that's you know i looked i'm like man this is like small this like small and uh and then the other thing i noticed 
you know, when I was doing it was I played the interview that I've done. And if you've never heard it, you should listen to it. So if you go to the All Marine Radio website, and in the search in the search box, type in the word sure, S-U-R-E. And you're going to see an interview um, with a woman by the name of Agnes Schur. And there's one I did with she and Harris Holman. So um, the, the, the one that I want you to listen to, though, is entitled A Nurse at Pearl Harbor. Agnes Schur. And so I meet Agnes Schur when somebody gives me her name. And um, she's from a, a small farm town uh, by the name of Botno, North Dakota. Botno's claim to fame is um, is that it's the home of the Peace Garden. Yeah. There's a Peace Garden on the U.S.-Canadian border. Uh, I think it commemorates World War II. And um, it's in Botno County. She grows up like little farm on the prairie, sh- you know, little house on the prairie shit. She wants to see the world. She knows the only way that, you know, her parents will allow that is if she's safe. And so she says, I have to become, a, you know, I can see the world with the Navy and I'll be safe. So she wanted to be a nurse. So she becomes a nurse. She joins the Navy, goes to Great Lakes, right, training. And then she happens to be on the USS Solus at Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1957 is when I was born. That was my birthday. But 1947. Um, and uh, it's a wonderful interview. And she talks about, you know, they were getting ready for formation that Sunday morning. And um, And so they were... I don't want to say, I want to say she says in the interview that she was, uh, she was um, rolling bandages or something when they heard the the first explosion. And, um, and they all thought it was, like everybody did originally, they all thought it was, um, it was, you know, a drill. And then they got louder, and I don't know if it was after. Then they went to general quarters, and she said, we saw officers running who we'd never seen run in our lives, and we knew something was wrong. And then she said she she looks at, she looks out the porthole of the ship. Yeah. Gives you some idea of, uh, gives you some idea of, uh, of what happened. Of uh, you know, kind of dates, uh, dates the interview, but um, and she says this Japanese zero flies down uh, the side of the ship. Yeah, and so uh, it's a very cool interview. Agnes, A G N E S, sure S U R E. So and it, I I thought of her. And so I looked to where the solace was. 
So if you you know the the view from that you normally see of the Arizona exploding. Yeah. Um if you look to the right and kind of around the bend, that's where the solace was anchored. That's where the solace was anchored, and that's where Agnes Sher was. So I kind of looked, and then, I mean, that story's been in my head since we did that interview. Um, today, um, you're going to hear a very, very, um, how would I describe it? The Mensa brothers aren't going to join me today. They're going to probably join me on Monday and then Thursday of next week because of scheduling problems um, and me being in Hawaii and then them being unavailable this morning or tonight, Will's playing poker. Um, a gentleman, a uh, retired Marine officer, uh, going to join me, um, and his name is Walt Yates. Walt heard um, the broadcast that dealt with the findings of fact in the AAV incident, um, the 15th Mew AAV incident that killed eight Marines and one sailor. He shot me an email, and he said, "Hey, I, uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm a, in fact, I may have taught Walt at the basic school, but um, Walt said uh, I'm an artillery officer by trade. In order to not go do a second tour on recruiting duty, I asked to go to Naval Postgraduate School. I did got into war gaming systems analysis stuff like that. Winds up in training education command." And he's there when the Marine Corps has an incident in the Western Pacific. The An Osprey with the 31st Mew, I want to say in August of 2017, uh, goes into the water trying to land on the USS Green Bay. And of the 26 Marines that are in the Osprey, three die in the crash. Uh, I believe it's the crew chief, the co-pilot who was at the controls, and then uh, one of the Marines in the back. Walt, uh, as part of training in, in education command, you know, pours through the investigation. And Walt has very, very specific opinions about the aftermath of that, the recommendations, and how the people involved in training and education in the Marine Corps to take these recommendations from investigations and implement them or not, who match resources, read money, or not, have failed, and that in the Marine Corps there is a climate of, yeah, not so much ground safety. And so you're going to hear Walt say some pretty interesting things in, in an interview we just recorded probably less than 30 minutes ago. We just concluded recording it 30 minutes ago. So don't touch that dial. Um, because what Walt says is the Marine Corps has got an institutional problem, and it's at the general officer level because we know what it requires to do more helo-dunker training, right, more underwater egress training so that everybody can be trained, and we've simply chosen not to do it because we don't want to spend the money on it. We don't want to spend the time. We don't want to build the facilities that it's going to take. So, whatever you do, don't touch that dial. All right, it's a it's a, it's a great interview, and not certainly not anything. I just get out of Walt's way and let him do his thing. So you'll hear that here momentarily. But the United States Marine Corps band makes this morning official. Good morning. Mm-hmm.
and this is dedicated to all the people at uh, at Pacific Air Force um, who helped me out um, throughout my uh, throughout my trip out there and uh, and the trip back and uh, and did everything uh, from setting me up and inviting me and and making it happen to um, to driving me around because I did not have a rental car. So um, a huge thank you. To Elaine, to Lieutenant Colonel Danley, to, you know, to uh, Mass Sergeant Wheeler, um, and everybody else, right, who uh, uh, who helped me. I had a, uh, there's a lieutenant who drove me around. Her name is Gilson. Um, she's great. And uh, so I just had a ton of help. And just want to thank everybody uh, for uh, for all the help. And but most, uh, I also want to thank uh, how this got set in motion, and that is uh, the wife of the chief of staff of the Air Force, not the current one, but the past one, Dave Goldfein, general type. His wife is named Dawn. Dawn saw me do the uh, post medic winning at the Pentagon. Let's see, that would have been in uh, May of 2019, so almost two years ago. And uh, she brought me to an event that the Air Force had for their general officers in Colorado Springs uh, called Corona. There, uh, the wife of then, the head of uh, Pacific Air Force, uh, General Brown, who's now the chief of staff of the Air Force, his wife, Shereen Brown, she sees it and says, you've got to come to the Pacific. And I said, I'd, I'd love to. And then COVID happens, and uh, obviously the, the thing gets put, the pause button gets pushed for a year. And so um, it was a lady by the name of Elaine Rath Daly who, um, who kept this thing, had me do it virtually, uh, once and it got great reviews and then you know um, they brought me there to speak again so a huge thank you uh, to everybody uh, who who got my ass out there and made it uh, a lady by name you know um, Chandra Chanda is her name not bruh um, but she was uh, she was uh, the one who uh, said, "Hey Mac, will you come do this virtually for for a bunch of spouses?" I said, I'd "Love to." And then uh, a uh, command master sergeant by the name of Hall, uh, he set up the top three thing. So all these people opening doors for me, and uh, I just uh, want to say thank you just for the uh, incredible reception and support. And so this is dedicated to a lot of people that work for the United States Air Force and uh, and some that work for the Navy. Thank you very much. It was an honor, and hopefully I'll see you guys again uh, here in the next month.
you're betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think and you don't say it honestly and bluntly what keeps you awake at night nothing i keep other people awake at night for this campus had prepared him well <clears throat> i'm very confident that thank you very much <clears throat> if this was vodka it'd be a lot better speech <clears throat> <clears throat> but I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore, so young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day, and Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't, we don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago. Persevere against difficult challenging conditions and odds can win. You gotta win. All right, time to uh, check the weather. It was more humid than normal, they told me in Hawaii. I said normally they said normally it's light humidity. That's why everybody loves it here. I said, oh. well it's kinda gooey right now. And like, yeah, that's not normal. Currently it is sunny in seventy eight in Quantico hot yeah may is upon us so it's about that time down the coast of camp lejeune it is partly sunny 79 marine corps base 29 palms sunny in 74 camp pendleton sunny in 66 camp smith in hawaii dark cloudy 67 okinawa dark cloudy 62 darwin on the north coast of Australia, where it's always hot, it is dark cloudy 78, so it's cooled off a little bit there. Um, in Oslo, in Norway, partly sunny and 51. At the home of Almering Radio, sunny and 64, looking for a high today of 80. Yeah. 79 tomorrow, 67 on Saturday, 68 on Sunday. That is a look at your weather. So without further ado, um, I'm going to... Uh, uh, introduce you to uh, Lieutenant Colonel or Colonel Walt Yates, and Colonel Yates retired, and you're gonna you're gonna hear his story. But essentially, he's an artillery officer. Marine Corps wants him to go to a second command, a second tour in recruiting. He says, "Yeah, I'm not doing that." Um, gets orders to Naval Post Graduate School because he's smart. And gets into system analysis, wargaming, and things like that. As such, he's working for Training and Education Command. When an investigation that recommends changes to training relative to underwater egress for both Ospreys and AAVs. And he, what he does is he reviews the investigation. He sees things that should happen relative to training. They don't happen. He writes the IG and, and whatnot. Then he sees the um, investigation into the 15th Mu uh, Amtrak sinking, and he sees the same thing cited that he saw in the 15th Mu investigation. And so he writes me an email and says, Hey, Mac, um, I'd like to talk to you. So uh, this is the interview uh, that I did earlier this morning with uh, Colonel Walt Yates, United States Marine Corps. Retired. 